on today's episode of the Break It Down for Bracken's podcast, I was lucky to be able to meet up with Dr. Lynn O'Connell. She works at she works in Huntington, West Virginia, and she is a subject matter expert on the opioid crisis and the recovery plans that the state is putting into effect. Um, as you can tell from this intro, I really don't know a ton about the topic. But it was really amazing, the amount of information I got from her over the course of 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, I was really psyched that she was willing to come on. I know Lynn from Leadership West Virginia. And again, during one of my short visits to Huntington this week, uh, I was able to link up with her. And through collaboration with numerous uh, entities in her community and working on a state level, she's been able to put together programs that are really the tip of the spear on how the recovery from substance abuse um, is being handled. We also talk about what um, terminology is good to use and what terminology is bad to use. So let's let's hear Lynn break it down for Brackens. The intro and background music you're hearing today on the podcast is produced and written and performed by Peter Clark from his album Peter Clark After Dark. This song is actually called Finely Tanned Beer Guts. I used to have a beer cut. Sometimes it was tanned. I don't know if it was finely tanned. It was definitely a hairy kind of tanned beer gut. But I don't really know much about why this song is named this or where he drew his inspiration. But you can hear the full song on Peter Clark After Dark, which you can search on SoundCloud. Dr. O'Connell, thank you for being on my podcast. Of course. No problem, Kevin. It's good to be with you. Thanks. So let's break down... um, I guess the opioid crisis, or but I mean, there's, there's the funny thing about the opioid crisis. It's not even that funny, I guess. But the fact is, in my weekly conversations, it comes up two or three times, just around town, during podcasts, um, just talking to to friends and family. It seems to be an overwhelming crisis, and it's hard to really identify what's being done if you're not in a treatment. Uh, program or facility if you're not actually one of the people who's addicted the um but i feel like it really comes up a lot that's why i wanted to talk to you so maybe you could help uh people understand and i know this is going to be a multi-part topic where we'll meet three to five times over the next year or so to discuss different aspects or components of this topic but i guess first let's talk about your background you know where are you from where'd you go to school what'd you study family all that sort of stuff okay I am originally from outside D.C. I grew up in Reston, Virginia, which is Fairfax County. Um, Eventually moved out to Loudoun County, Virginia. I did my undergrad in psych and philosophy um, at Franklin and Marshall in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and eventually moved up to get my master's in marriage and family therapy at the University of Connecticut. And that sort of progression was based on really wanting um, to be in a helping profession and engage with folks at that level and not necessarily not necessarily knowing what that looked like or what that was for me at the time. Um, So I got my master's and was working exclusively with couples and families, and not necessarily related to addiction, but anytime you're working with couples and families, you're often going to find substance use or addiction within the family system. After that, I got my PhD at Virginia Tech down in Blacksburg, Virginia, and that is where I met my now husband, and we relocated to Huntington, West Virginia. Okay, that's awesome. The uh, so UConn family and marriage counseling, marriage and family therapy. Yep. Marriage therapy, nice. 
All right, and then um, PhD. What was the focus of the PhD? Officially, the marriage and family therapy are housed in human development and family science departments. Um, so it's a clinical and research track. And so marriage and family therapy was a piece of that, both for my master's and my PhD. So both are human development and family science. All right. Okay. So I met Dr. O'Connell uh, going through the Leadership West Virginia program, which is run by the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce. And in the numerous uh, trips that we took together, she was regularly coaching people on what the proper terminology was when addressing the opioid crisis or addiction or recovery. So why don't we, um, why don't we go down that path of what to say and what not to say? What's, what's, what's the proper terminology when referring to somebody who's having challenges with um, drugs or addiction? This is a difficult topic because a lot of people don't realize that they might be using terms that are stigmatizing or are language that is actually keeping people from disclosing a substance use disorder and getting help. So what we often hear in the headlines and in everyday conversations are terms like addict. Um, historically, we heard a lot of terms like junkie or um, crackhead, very... Uh, very stigmatizing slang terms. And those don't actually encapsulate the idea that it is a medical condition and that people do recover. And they're very dehumanizing. If we say wall, window, picture, attic, table, um, it sounds like I'm just referring to inanimate objects. And so it's easier not to care about those things. When we refer to an individual with a substance use disorder, I'm talking about a person first and I'm reminded that they have a medical condition, which is officially the diagnosis of a substance use disorder, in the same way that someone could be diagnosed with um, type 1 diabetes or hypertension or asthma, um, which are the other three major chronic diseases that we experience in the United States. So substance use disorder, what are examples that, of substances that would fall under that category? Honestly, anything. So when we're broadly speaking, we can use terms around addiction. So an individual with an addiction. And that means that they have met um, three criteria. They have a craving of the object, a loss of control over its use, and continued use despite adverse consequences. And you might think, that sounds like me and my cell phone, or me and sugar, and or me and caffeine. And so addiction is really broad. And so when we are talking about the opioid epidemic, if we say someone is addicted, it's not ex it's not clear. What are they addicted to? And they might be addicted to many different things. So when we refer to a substance use disorder, we might be talking about um, licit or illicit drugs. And that could include alcohol, tobacco, heroin, prescription painkillers, benzodiazepines, those drugs that individuals use um, to cope with mental health conditions. Any of those can become addictive and they can be used at a normal level, a prescribed level, um, a level that a doctor is, is encouraging an individual to use based on chronic or short-term pain. Or they could be um, something that the individual has become addicted to, and the brain is now craving that object, and they're continuing to use it at a higher and higher rate because they've reached a level of tolerance or dependency on the substance. And so we could see how that could be true about tobacco use, that could be true about opioid use, or that could be true about alcohol use. And so many different substances can fall into that category. And that's often why a doctor might say a substance use disorder, um, specifically an opioid use disorder. So uh, highlighting or focusing in on the substance that they're treating or prescribing for that individual. Okay, so 
I guess the stigmatizing terminology like junkie, crackhead, is the word addict stigmatizing? It is. Okay. And what, what would somebody say instead of addict? Well, we always encourage the use of person-first language, and that means that I'm putting the individual at the start of the sentence. So I could say an individual with a substance use disorder, an individual struggling with the disease of addiction, um, an individual not yet in recovery is actually one of the most hopeful ways to place that sentence, where I put that person first. And that also means that I'm not defining who they are based on their diagnosis. So we don't really like to say depressed people. We would say a person with depression. Because when we put the title before them, it defines who they are, rather than making it something that is flexible. When we say they're an individual or a person first, and then there are these things that can change when it comes later in the sentence. All right, what are other examples of stigmatizing language? One that we've heard a lot about um, based on the opioid epidemic is reference to something, um, reference to a drug baby. A baby who is born with exposure is how we'd want to say that. But people often summarize that and they say addicted babies or drug babies. And that's just factually inaccurate and it's stigmatizing. So we want to say an infant born with exposure, an infant experiencing withdrawals, um, an infant with neonatal abstinence syndrome would be the official diagnosis if one knew that that was true. And if we refer to a drug baby um, or an addicted baby, it's inaccurate because an infant doesn't have craving of the object, loss of control over its use, and continued use despite adverse consequences, which is what we use to define addiction. And so they're not addicted to that substance. They were born with exposure to that substance. I see. I see. And then uh, any others you want to touch on? We do want to refer to a substance use disorder because that is the medically correct term. As a whole, we're moving away from the word abuse, and that is because abuse elicits feelings of crime. And so people are more likely to associate an abuser with a negative characteristic. Um, there's research that shows that if we refer, if we ask people, um, there's two same people, substance use disorder, an individual with that, and we have an individual who's a substance abuser. And if we ask people, do they equally deserve treatment, they're more likely to say the abuser does not. They're also more likely to say the abuser has an innate um, character flaw. They are not able to control their behavior. They um, are more likely to need uh, legal involvement or to be incarcerated. Um, and so we know as a whole that means that individuals are less likely to agree to help fund programs for that person or provide any supports or resources. And we know that people do recover, and so we want to provide those next steps and that recovery resources for them. So you're saying that by changing the language, for the most part, you're able to find ways to get more funding or approval for programming by simply changing the language so it's not stigmatizing. Absolutely. The number one barrier to accessing treatment is stigma. So if we control for transportation, um, cost, childcare, all these other factors that impact why a person may or may not seek recovery programming, we know that stigma remains the number one barrier. And that's because an individual doesn't often want to be associated with having a substance use disorder because of this national stigma towards that medical condition. And so individuals are less likely to seek treatment because they don't want to be associated with those people um, as society often uh, talks about them. And so it's going to keep people from effectively engaging in treatment. 
And we know that, and that is what we call self-stigma, when an individual internalizes the stigma that the community is putting out. And what we call that community level stigma is public stigma. And that's sort of the, the belief that we are marginalizing a certain group of people based on similar characteristics. And we do that um, in regards to sometimes race, gender, different jobs. And so uh, we also do it towards mental health and substance use disorders, and that's public stigma. And when the individual internalizes that, it becomes self-stigma. The public stigma keeps us from funding programs or um, allowing them to exist in our community. You said that's self? That, that would be public stigma. Okay. And self-stigma is when that individual then internalizes those beliefs and says, if they say that about those people, I don't want to be one of those people. And so I'm going to avoid treatment because I don't want to be aligned with that diagnosis. Well, Dr. O'Connell, you're being extremely thorough. And usually I try to repeat the things that um, I'm learning, but you're literally so thorough with your explanation of these things that it would be redundant if I, additionally redundant, if I repeated the things that you just said. Um, I, I feel like people in recovery or people in programs, if I'm using the correct language, um, there are so many that it's becoming something that needs to be recognized and accepted as just a part of how things are going. So instead of stigmatizing it or instead of talking negatively about it, it makes more sense, even as, as a business owner, that how do I begin to embrace this? Assuming it's not going away, assuming it's going to be here in five to 10 years as well, it's possible that significantly more people will be in recovery from one thing or another. How do I, as a, uh, a business owner, work within the system rather than shunning the system, right? She's nodding her head, which means she's agreeing with me somewhat. Um, what are some examples of uh, successful programs for addiction mm -hmm. in the state? I'm really glad you brought up um, as a whole the employment industry as well because I think that's important to, to touch on is people are already employing individuals with substance use disorders right now and they don't know it. Um, and they're also often reluctant to employ an individual with a substance use disorder past because they think that they might have greater liability. Um, but we actually know that that's not true. Individuals who are in recovery have greater long-term potential than individuals not because they often have a great support system, they have um, therapy, they have family members, they might have a peer support program like AA or NA, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and so those individuals actually become a great asset in an employment industry because they're aware of their triggers or past history and they are, have sought treatment or support or uh, help for that. And so they become a great um, person to employ. When we're looking at statewide programs, I would be remiss to not mention the statewide hotline, um, and that is 844-HELP, the number four, WV. And that is a 24-7, 365 hotline um, that you can call and have any type of um, treatment or referral program given to you. You can actually also text that number, which is 844-435, 7498, which is help for WV spelt out in numbers. Okay, and when you say a referral program, what does that mean? 
So it means that you can call or text them and they will help, they will give you an on, uh, over the phone assessment or a, a, a survey to identify drug most commonly used because we know it's not just opioid use that people are struggling with. Um, and so they're gonna identify what drug is uh, the greatest concern because that might actually decide what type of treatment you need. For example, if it's alcohol or opioids, the individual needs to often go through a medical withdrawal management program, which we often just call detox, so a detoxification program. Coming is off that a of, program you do at home, or do you have to go somewhere for that? No, you are going to want to go into a hospital-based setting for that, and okay. be, that's because um, alcohol withdrawals and opioid withdrawals, um, those, uh, well, alcohol withdrawals specifically, um, can be fatal for an individual to go through, especially if there is an underlying health condition that they might not know about. But in general, those types of withdrawals for alcohol or opioids um, can be deadly, and so it's ideal to have that done in a medically supervised program. And so that could be a hospital, or there are um, standalone detox centers. And oftentimes they're going to give you drugs or medication to help manage the feeling and effect of withdrawal, because it can be excruciatingly painful um, for an individual to go through. So if I'm detoxing off of alcohol or opioids, you're saying they're going to give me more drugs to get over my drugs? They're going to give you um, different substances that are going to help with the effects of that. And yes, it's going to be another form of a, a pharma, uh, pharmacological intervention, so some sort of um, medication that's going to assist with the effects of that and help Was the word drugs it. the wrong word? It's not. It just, it is difficult to say um, drugs to get over your drugs. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So, well, and again, and again I, I like to ask some of the really basic questions mm -hmm. because logically somebody would say they understand what you're saying, but to, for the most part, why do more drugs or more substances to get off of a substance? Wouldn't I get hooked on another substance, but I guess if that substance isn't addictive, then um, good to go. Well, I think it's the same way that some people can take, um, for example, Oxycontin or Oxycodone, the, the drugs that um, are associated with the opioid, the origins of the opioid epidemic, um, the most recent opioid epidemic, and they can look at those and say, um, well, I took those for a month or a week, and I didn't have any signs um, of dependency. I didn't like the way I felt on them. Whereas we know other individuals can take a drug or a substance one time and start to show the effects of dependency. They can immediately like the way they felt. In fact, I've heard people describe it as, for the first time I felt normal, or I felt at peace when I took that. And that's because we're all genetically and chemically different. The uh, hormones in my brain are different than the hormones in your brain, and that might mean that mine respond more positively um, to that opioid, and I'm going to enjoy the effects of it more than someone else might. And that's why um, it's very difficult and confusing to fully understand what types of treatment are effective for individuals. Some people can withdraw off an opioid and um, not need any sort of pharmacological intervention. They don't need another medication or a drug to help them with that, both in the short term or in the long term. Other individuals might need medication to help them through the withdrawals. Um, and that might be for 24, 48 hours, 72 hours. 
and then they might actually need to go to a medication-assisted treatment program. And I would say that's probably a, a, a full another podcast of a conversation about what medication-assisted treatment is okay. and, and its benefits. But those are just different types of ways that an individual might need another substance in the same way that some people can control their diabetes with um, eating changes and exercise. And other individuals are looking um, at a lifetime of, of insulin. And so it's just different types of interventions, not to say one is right or better, but each individual needs to find their course of effective treatment. Okay, so the help number, what was that again? 1-844-HELP-4-WV, which okay. is 844-435-7498. How is that funded? That is um, funded through the state of West Virginia. And okay. so um, First Choice is the organization over that. They also run the um, the gambling hotline as well. Um, and so they are dedicated to connecting people to services and knowing about statewide services. So knowing about different uh, detox programs, knowing about different treatment programs, and helping connect someone to that. Maybe that means helping them get their medical card, um, helping them find that that treatment program because they might be in Huntington, but they need to go to Charleston for a detox, or they might be in uh, Wyoming County or Mercer County, and they need to go um, up to the Northern Panhandle. So oftentimes it's finding that treatment bed because you have a limited opportunity to engage with that individual once they become motivated and ready for treatment. Got it. Got it. Okay. What other programs are there for that are statewide? Are there any... I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just wondering, for the sake of anybody who's interested, but also if somebody has a family member or they themselves might be struggling with some addiction. So um, most, or all across the state, we have um, federally qualified healthcare centers. Those are going to be different in each region. Um, there's also comprehensive behavioral healthcare centers. Again, different in each region but they cover an area and they offer different types of support or services. That might include residential treatment or that might include medication assisted treatment. So it's gonna be different all across the state. There isn't just a single platform or recovery program that exists in every county. Okay, and what if I'm broke? How do I get that treatment? So there's a lot of different programs that will work with an individual um, who does not have the financial resources. So there are some abstinence-based programs around the state that are at no cost to an individual. Explain what that is. And that would be a peer-to-peer -peer support program where an individual can go reside on site, oftentimes for nine months to a year. Um, and that's, that is uh, medically accurate how long it takes for the brain to start to restabilize um, when an individual is withdrawing off substances, especially if you're thinking um, about a long-term history of use. And so um, abstinence-based programs are not going to um, promote the use of any other type of pharmacological intervention, like a medication-assisted treatment. A large okay. one here in the state of West Virginia is Recovery Point, West Virginia. Okay. Um, I cut you off. We were talking about the um, being broke and trying to get in. You said that peer-to-peer, -peer, and then you are going to say something else? that um, medical cards and the expansion of um, Medicaid in the state of West Virginia have allowed people to find um, substance use treatment through that. And so a lot of programs will help someone get um, their medical card and then pay for services through that by billing insurance. Okay. 
What about, um, what, what have I not asked on that topic? Well, I want to highlight some maybe Huntington programs. Okay. Okay. Um, so. Which is where we are right now. We're yeah. in Huntington, Huntington, yeah. West Virginia. Yep. Beautiful Huntington on the banks of the Ohio. Um, and so Huntington, I think historically, one of the reasons it's really important to talk about stigma is because there's stigma towards um, substance use disorders. There's stigma towards mental health. There's actually stigma towards West Virginia and the Appalachia region as a whole. Um, and so when we think of that, it means that the national media was quick to jump on um, some counties or communities <clears throat> in West Virginia that were especially hard hit by the opioid epidemic. So Huntington is one of those. And, and there's been national headlines out there about it being the <clears throat> opioid capital of the world. I'm joking. Um, there's comments about it being the opioid capital of the world um, or the overdose capital and, and a lot of other negative statements. Of the world. I know. It's okay. a little dramatic. Really? Yeah. But those were put out there. They were headlines ran on newspapers and lots of major news organizations came to Huntington and ran these expose stories. And in many cases, they often used black and white photography as though there is no color in Huntington, which uh -huh. was mostly to promote this stigmatizing image. It, it's easier to make things look dark or dingy or dirty or old if you're using that sort of um, photography. And so they came in and they used that and they ran headlines about addicted babies and the overdose capital of the world. And it really um, forced a lot of stigma towards Huntington and West Virginia and the Appalachia region as a whole. So as part of that, um, Huntington, I think, did this highly coordinated response. And it was because it was, the option was to bury your head in the sand and pretend like it's not a problem or to face it head on. And I think one of the great things was Huntington and Cabell County chose to face it head on. And that means that people were um, actively working together to identify where the gaps were in what we call the continuum of care, which kind of means that there needs to be all different points of entry for a person to get into the system of treatment. And that could be ranging from harm reduction, outpatient treatment, inpatient treatment, um, hospitalization, all of that across uh, the continuum. And we identified that there were a lot of gaps. It was a lot more like Swiss cheese than we wanted it to look like. And so in a way to address all of those holes were the Mayor's Office of Drug Control Policy, a coordinated effort by the hospital and healthcare systems, the, um, the university and the medical school. And that really led to where we are today with Huntington's Can roadmap. Can you give me an recovery. example of some of the collaboration? Yeah. So um, one of the most unique programs that exists here in Huntington and is really not seen anywhere else nationally is what we call PROACT. Um, and that is an acronym, as most of our programs are. And it stands for Provider Response Organization for Addiction, Care, and Treatment, P-R-O-A-C-T. And PROACT was developed because we realized that if you said, hi, I'm Lynn and I have a substance use disorder and I need help, there was nowhere that you could walk in and get help right in that moment. And what we know is if you don't get help the minute you need it, the people then sort of start to lose motivation. Sure. As we all do, right? When it comes to any type of behavior change. So hospitals and healthcare systems aren't equipped for that. Um, the ED is not, the emergency department is not a place um, necessarily equipped or suited for that, or it hasn't been historically. Some are making changes in that area. So PROACT allows people to walk in the door 
and receive an immediate assessment and access to care. And so that's really unique. Um, it also is based on comprehensive wellness. And that means that when you have your intake, they're also looking at um, transportation, they're asking about social health and wellness, they're asking about employment, and they're asking about spiritual care. Um, and all of those are actually under one roof at PROACT. And that's because it's a unique collaboration um, between- Hold on, where is it? It is downtown Huntington. Is it two locations or one location? One location. Okay. It's all under one roof as of right now. Um, and so- uh, Attached to a hospital or? Nope, standalone. Okay. They actually took over, um, I guess a little bit ironically, an old CVS building um, and renovated it so that there is um, individual, so you go in, you can receive individual treatment um, or individual therapy, group therapy, peer support uh, services, family navigation services, which help um, come alongside the individual and help them identify uh, what other supports might exist in the community. They also receive a spiritual care assessment, and that's not um, assessing their religiosity. It's assessing their sort of purpose-driven life. They're sort of finding meaning, um, what things they like to do or engage in. And then they also can receive employment um, support services or educational referrals. And so all of that, along with medication-assisted treatment, um, is occurring. And there's also a pharmacy, all under that singular roof, um, to allow it to be a one-stop shop, a single point of access. So, so I understand that is an enormous amount of collaboration. Mm -hmm. but who, who's in charge of that? And is it like run by a hospital or run by a nonprofit? Like, how's that, how, what's the background on that? So um, there's five different organizations that are part of PROACT, and that is um, Valley Health is a federally qualified healthcare center here in our region, and they provide the medication-assisted treatment. Um, Marshall Health has the director of PROACT, um, and so it's housed in the Division of Addiction Sciences at Marshall Health. And then they also have um, the hospital system, so Cabell Huntington Hospital and St. Mary's, which are now both part of the Mountain Health Network, and then um, Thomas Health in Charleston, because the goal is to actually expand this um, into another region in the future. Okay. I want to sidebar a little bit. Uh, last night when we were out to dinner, we met a gentleman who I believe is a safety director mm -hmm. or something for one of the hospitals, mm -hmm. and you guys were discussing the collaboration between one of the programs you're working with or how you guys worked even with just the security team at the hospital. Can you go into a little bit of detail of sure. how that transpired? Yeah. Um, so because the negative effects I think were felt to be very overwhelming, the hospital systems were facing huge burdens um, with individuals who were struggling, their loved ones or family members or other people who um, might be coming into the hospital to visit someone. So security is not one of the first groups of people you would think to engage with um, in a hospital or healthcare system when you're thinking of the opioid epidemic, but they are um, definitely on the front lines. They're the first person, the nurse or the physician, is going to call when someone might become belligerent or angry um, or whatever sort of going on for them. So in the ERs or the emergency departments, <clears throat> as well as on the floors of the hospital, the hospitals were experiencing overdoses within the hospital. They were experiencing people who were hospitalized as a result of maybe endocarditis or another um, related disease to a substance use disorder, and they were continuing to use substances within the halls and the walls of the hospital. And oftentimes, this puts not only that individual at risk in their medical treatment and care, but it puts the nursing staff and the other people who work in the hospital at, at risk. 
And so I think, unfortunately, for a long time, um, there was no hope for how to treat or work with an individual. When um, a nurse or a physician goes into a helping profession, you know, spends all that time and money um, to go through medical school, they want to provide knowledge and an intervention for an individual. And with the substance use disorder epidemic, I don't think people felt as though they knew what to do. They didn't have a number they could call right away. There wasn't a program someone could walk into. There was sort of a shortage and, and long wait lists. And so that meant um, that historically people, I think, got more burnt out than they might have because they were seeing the same people over and over and over again and not having any way to engage them in treatment or recovery. And so that meant that the security guards were also seeing the same people over and over again and not having any way to engage them in any treatment or recovery. And so slowly over time, um, the, the burden was felt by everyone. And something that we've then seen is as we've offered treatment and recovery within the hospitals, there's a project called Project Engage that offers people um, peer support services and, and medication-assisted treatment within the hospital and then connects them to another program. We've seen that the, the staff have hope again. They know they have a tool in their toolbox that they can refer an individual to. And so this means that um, the hospitals was bring, were bringing everybody on board. They were training um, security. They were giving them more resources about how to deal with someone. And so one of the um, unique things is because Huntington is such a collaborative community, when security at St. Mary said, we have someone here, they want treatment, um, we've been able to actually get them treatment in Charleston, but we have no ability to get them there, what are we going to do? Um, and so they called me, and I, um, I said, you know, I'm not really sure, but let's figure this out. And so we contacted different groups around the community um, and found um, someone who was, was headed to Charleston um, and actually works in treatment and recovery and was willing to go over, pick them up, and take them um, to, to treatment in Charleston. And that's a one sort of unique um, way that it can be done. In other cases, we are calling the hospitals and saying, do you have um, anyone like security or a, an ambulance or someone who's going in that uh, region or direction? And so I think over time, it meant that more people felt as though they they had connections, they had someone they could call, um, whether that was the uh, became help for WV, whether that became the, the Huntington quick response team, whether that became the hospital system, just there were more connections and so people felt uh, greater, a greater sense of hope over time and that just reduces burnout and those negative effects of what we call compassion fatigue. Okay, so with the adjusting the stigmatized image of Huntington as being the world capital, world capital. I mean, that's very famous for addiction, right? And, Apparently so. And over, the overdose yeah. crisis. It was a nice little tagline. They that's ran amazing. with it. Right. I mean, it's not true. But I know, it was. but it's just amazing that, that it went that far. What other um, things happened in Huntington to change that point of view, change the image? Kevin, do you have the next four hours? Do people really want to listen? Okay, okay, okay. All right, cool. Maybe maybe that's an entirely different podcast also. But um, tell me one more awesome thing you guys did here in Huntington. And I think what's really great also while you're thinking about that is it's good to hear from somebody who has their fingers in so much. Like you have, you have a lot of reach with this and clearly a lot of knowledge. And it's good to know that people like you and your colleagues around the state are at the helm and it's not just everybody's just trying some ideas it sounds like there's really good direction and there's a really good plan in place and there's possibly even funding there but 
it's it's here to stay and mm-hmm. it's something that I'm just glad there's good leaders who are um, attacking it and trying to I mean everything from developing that collaborative project of proact to the coordinating and collaboration between security or hospital administration with another organization just to find somebody a ride to treatment that's for one person proact is for thousands of people that's it's just really neat to see the collaboration from a large scale right down to an individual scale yeah Yeah. i think um it is i'm you know i am one small piece of this giant wheel that is moving both here in huntington um, and around the state there is a coordinated statewide office of drug control policy There is a governor's council um, that has people from all the different areas of the state, law enforcement, judicial, healthcare, um, prevention, early intervention, education, (laughs) housing, all of those people sit on that council and help advise what is out there right now, which is the governor's um, Office of Drug Control Policy strategic plan. And so that means that there is a statewide strategic plan for how to address this, not just the short-term, but a long-term plan. And there's also a strategic plan here in Huntington um, for how we see the future, and that is what we call the resiliency plan. And that actually can be found, um, that was published uh, a few weeks ago, and so that is also online. So both of those documents um, can be found, and they're showing this coordinated effort. They're showing things that have worked over the past two or three years and things that will work for the next 30 years. Um, And and they're all flexible because we know it's an ever-changing sort of effect of the epidemic. Um, But they do allow for this sort of coordinated effort across all of the different platforms because the effects that we're feeling right now are, you know, the goal, first goal was to keep people alive. The second goal was to get them into treatment. Um, The third is to have a, you know, the opposite of addiction is not just um, recovery, it's connection. It's connecting people back into the workforce, connecting them back into families, reunification. Um, And so we have, you know, we're working on all three of those goals now simultaneously. But then we have this whole group of kids um, who were born whether they were born with exposure to a substance or they were born into a home um, in which substance use was um, affecting the family system. And so we now have to have, you know, generational impact to address those kids growing up maybe without a parent or a parent who's incarcerated or died as a result of their substance use or their own sort of childhood trauma. So it's this long-term coordinated effort. Is it right for me to understand that you're involved with the resiliency plan? Mm -hmm. You were involved in helping develop that? Yeah, we had over um, 20 organizations. Yeah, so that's the thing. Okay, so, but what's good is that you're you're at the tip of the spear, right? Helping develop these things. And the more you talk about, whether it's helping people in recovery get back into the workforce or back into society, or you're talking about um, keeping people alive. There's so much content in this that I literally have to figure out how to, like, I want to have a whole podcast just on your resiliency plan and how, um, another town or city could adopt a similar plan or where they can go to get the resources to mimic what you're doing. That's an entirely different content podcast. So I guess this is just basically a teaser on what we can get into in the future. Um, but it's, it's, I find it extremely interesting because the process behind it, like how much, ha- do you have staff? Yes. So the division of addiction sciences 
um, is housed within Family and Community Health at the Jones C. Edwards School of Medicine. And at Marshall. At Marshall. Uh -huh. um, and so, yes, it's the that's the medical school at Marshall. Wait, break and, it down again. What was it? The so the Jones C. So we have Marshall University. Yeah. And then the medical school is the Jones C. Edwards School of Medicine. Okay. And within the medical school, you have um, the Department of Family and Community Health. And that's actually also the practice arm of what we call that is family medicine, when you go to your, your doctor, your primary care doctor. Right. And so the division of addiction sciences is actually housed within that department because it's showing that the university and the medical school believe that addiction is a primary care disease, not something to be isolated out, but is something that a family medicine doctor could identify, detect, and then help to intervene with. And that is a huge effort in reducing stigma by making it a primary care chronic disease. Was that the division of addiction sciences? Yes. Okay, you're, you're, just, you're just pummeling me with content here <laughs> and I, I wanna make sure I'm understanding it and I'm not at liberty at this moment to rewind it and say, wait, what did she say? <laughs> because this is live right now with me and you. So um, the division of addiction sciences at Marshall and then that's in the um, family, family and community health. Right. So Marshall University, do other universities have a, these type of sort of programs? Not many. Okay. Um, this was to help coordinate uh, the response and these in types Huntington of- or In the Huntington or the state? Yep. Okay. Um, we, we, as far reaching as we need to be, we will. So reaching into Ohio and Kentucky and around the state, we actually just finished a 55 county um, tour where we did 14 uh, events all around the state to highlight what we call the City of Solutions, which is our now handbook for how we did what we did, which is different than the resiliency plan, Kevin. City of Solutions? Yep. Which oh. is our rebrand. You asked me about that. What did Huntington do? So we said we are no longer the epicenter of the epidemic. We are the City of Solutions. Okay, look, <laughs> there are so many cool things I want to talk to you about, but we're just going to have to set up a whole series with Dr. O'Connell here because I'm just, I want to know more about the division of addiction sciences. Like that's, that tells me that Marshall, which could just be totally introspective and just deal with itself, is actually investing back not only in the state of West Virginia, but in Huntington to work with the city to set an example and to truly help. Mm -hmm. um, and then the city of solutions is a bold branding yeah and, and I, I remember seeing that and i was like wow that's hmm, they better come through like that's a that's a name that's a brand right there so i, I want to know more about that um i want to know more about proact is proact anywhere else or just here just here right now is it possible to have a proact yes in it is princeton west yep. virginia is it in fayetteville yep hmm okay final well, you asked me how many people are in the division. Oh, yeah, so we yeah. now have over 40 people, and we only started two years ago. Just in the division of addiction sciences? Yes. Wow. Those are incredible resources. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what, how does somebody get involved if they want to help or volunteer? And that's what we're going to wrap this thing up with because that's probably an entirely different podcast also. But what would be a little snippet of how somebody could get involved and say, look, I want to give back to the community. I want to help somebody. Or if somebody is done with recovery, I guess, is that the word? Recovered? An individual uh, would often say, most individuals in recovery state that recovery is a lifelong pursuit. Okay. So somebody who's well into recovery, yes. how would somebody like that or somebody who wants to help 
uh, find a way to volunteer or give back or even get a job in this? Yeah, there's a ton of different ways. And yes, it would be an absolutely, you know, long-term conversation, Jeez. but some Just easy give me a little, things, a little piece. some yeah. easy little things. One is don't share stigmatizing material on social media. It okay. promotes and spreads stigma. So from your couch or your cell phone, you can stop sharing viral videos that people post of someone overdosing. Those do not help. They promote shame. They do not engage people in recovery and they do not help communities perception improve. And so that's an easy thing. You could talk to your local news or media, newspaper especially, and inform them about stigma-free language and that there are style guides out there about reducing stigmatizing language in reporting. So that is another easy thing. Um, it's not, it takes a while, but we've seen a huge shift here in Huntington in our, in our local reporting. And I will say the Herald-Dispatch has done a fantastic job of changing headlines and, and the way that they're reporting on stories. So those are two easy things that you can kind of do from your couch. Um, if you want to get engaged in a program, there are often different fundraisers. So if, if money is one way for you to help, um, there's a lot of different programs that need funds because there's so many different things that aren't covered by insurance. When we have a mom come to Project Hope for Women and Children, which is our residential treatment program for moms um, who are using uh, substances who want to get into recovery and not have to give up their kids, they can um, move with their children into that residential program, they might come with literally nothing. They might have left a, a violent relationship. Yeah, um, okay. They might have been homeless. And so there's a lot of different supplies, like, you know, your your bedding, kids, baby clothes um, that people need, and those don't get covered by insurance. And so those are large overheads for a lot of different programs. And that's also true of Recovery Point and their programming. Um, uh, men or women in those programs might not, they might have just the clothes on their backs. And so um, finding ways to engage with them would be another um, way to support. Now, I will say, be mindful when you're giving donations of clothes. Um, if you don't want it and it's disgusting, please don't give it to an organization because they're just going to have to get rid of it and that uh, is a burden on their um, their staffing. So that would be um, a way to give money or to attend those charitable events that occur around the state that support those organizations. Um, and then some of them have um, volunteer needs. And so because of privacy, because of HIPAA, um, oftentimes that it's not always very easy to become like a one-time volunteer, but to become a standing volunteer in an organization might be hosting, um, uh, willing to host a birthday party or a, um, a family night, a movie night, um, uh, photography for moms and those kids. These are some of the programs that we've had the community offer to Project Hope that have been a huge benefit um, to our program there. And that's another way that an individual might get plugged in. So it, it's often calling and saying, what can I do? What do you need? Um, but then also being mindful that not every organization is going to have the same needs or, or ability to have someone come in the doors because we want to be protective of our, our uh, consumer or client privacy. Okay. That was great. Dr. O'Connell, if I could just rehash real quick some things that people could Google to learn uh -huh. on their own before the next podcast. Yes. City of Solutions is one. Yes. Don't 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 have to explain it anymore. Nope. It's there um, is a, a West Virginia Public Broadcasting article on that. So if nice. you Googled Huntington City of Solutions, uh, Recovery Point. Don't I? You, you keep dropping these program terms on me, and I'm like, I don't even know what that is either. Project Hope. 
I don't know what that is. Proact is something I would Google if I wanted to learn more. Yep. The Division of Addiction Services at Marshall, if I wanted to learn more. What are one or two other keywords we could, program keywords we could drop on Google websites? Um, Google the resiliency plan. That oh, yeah. is the, the future plan for Huntington um, looking forward. The City of Solutions is what we've done already, the programs we have, um, but the resiliency plan is looking forward. The West Virginia Office of Drug Control Policy, um, as led uh, by the Governor's um, Council, both of those have public websites and the state strategic plan is on that website, so that would be a, another um, easy Google. Well, Dr. O'Connell, thank you very much for, I mean, we've just barely started breaking this down, so um, I'm really happy to learn about adjusting how the stigma of addiction is and uh, what to say and what not to say, and I, I love the idea that we're just scratching the surface on what there is to learn and to share with people so they can know more about what's going on, and because it's, it's right in your community. It's probably right on your street. You don't even realize it, or you do realize it, so... Thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Kevin. Awesome. Have you heard of Bracken's painting? I started Bracken's painting back in 2011. We do both residential and commercial painting. We have contractors licenses in West Virginia and Virginia, and we carry all the necessary insurances, like workers' comp, general liability. Uh, we operate a small staff that focuses on meeting the homeowner's needs and project manager's timeline expectations. Uh, we, pri we try to have exceptional attention to detail. If you're interested in doing any sort of commercial or residential painting, please contact Bracken's Painting. More information can be found at www.brackenspainting.com. This podcast is brought to you by City National Bank in Ransom, West Virginia. I am Melissa Knott and manage both of our Jefferson County locations. Our Charlestown location is located on George Street in Charlestown and the Ransom location is located in the Potomac Marketplace Shopping Center. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. We offer a range of free checking accounts and savings products for both consumer and business customers. City National Bank offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for both business and personal needs. Come and talk to me or one of my team members and get products and services that are tailored to fit your schedule and help you to achieve your financial goals. I can be reached at both the Ranson and Charlestown locations. Check out our website at www.bankatcity.com.